Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. The sermon text today is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, but to be quite frankly, we're going to cover 1 Samuel 8 through 1 Samuel 31 to some extent today, so have your Bibles open. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and our Advent series is entitled Behold the King. We're going to be looking at the first three kings of Israel, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, and how they point us through their successes and their many failures to the King, Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of that term, Jesus Christ, or you think about how during Advent we talk about Jesus being the Messiah, that word means, both Christ and Messiah, mean the anointed one. And while when we think of the anointed one or the Messiah or the Christ, we think of Jesus naturally and understandably, but that word was actually first applied to the kings of Israel. They were the ones that were the anointed kings. They had oil poured over their heads to signify that this man was the king and the leader of Israel. So we're going to be looking at King Saul today. We're going to be looking at really his whole life, which covers much of the book of 1 Samuel. But I'm going to read for us 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 and 27, because it gives us a gist of who Saul is and where his life is going. So if you stand as I read God's word, 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 through 27. Now Samuel called, called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all calamities and your distresses, and you have now said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matriites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised and brought no him brought him no present, but he held his peace. You may be seated. So there's a lot there just in that one little section of 1 Samuel 10. But I also, but to start, we need to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you turn back a couple chapters, we're going to kind of set the context where Saul is being anointed the king of Israel. Now before King Saul, Israel was ruled by judges. Moses was called a judge, Joshua was called a judge, and then, of course, you have the whole book of Judges. But these judges were raised up kind of sporadically. What would happen is Israel would get themselves in a lot of trouble. They would start being oppressed by foreign nations, and then God would raise up a judge to defeat Israel's enemies and to bring everyone back into worship of the Lord. But the thing is, those judges were sporadically. There was no hereditary kingly line. 
And so Israel kind of went really up and down. Honestly, the book of Judges says that when the judge would die, Israel would fall right back into their idolatry and their wicked ways. So now Samuel, the person whom this book is named after, is currently the judge of Israel, and he's a good one. He is a judge, he is a priest, so he's able to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and he's also a prophet, meaning that he gets direct words from the Lord himself. And he's a good judge because if you look up in chapter 7, verse 13, the Philistines, who were Israel's main enemy during this time, they were being held back under Samuel's rule. Chapter 7, verse 13 says, The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So under Samuel, Israel was in a good place. But Samuel, at this point in time in chapter 8, is getting old. And if you turn there, you're going to see that the Israelites are actually going to take advantage of Samuel's old age and the fact that his sons were not like him. The apple apparently fell pretty far from the tree, and they're going to use this opportunity for some governmental overhaul. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all other nations. And then in verse 20, it says that the Israelites wanted a king so that the king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel's about to die. Israel's feeling their political safety, their governmental safety, falling away, dying with Samuel. And they want some centralized, clear, and consistent governmental and military leadership. So they say, give us a king. But when they say that to Samuel, Samuel takes it personally. He takes it personally in a lot of ways. They feel like they're rejecting his leadership. But there's also another reason why this is so sad. It's because the truth is the Israelites already had a king. God, Yahweh, was supposed to be their king. The Lord was supposed to be the one reigning over them. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests with the Lord as their king. He was supposed to be their God and their king, and they were supposed to be his people. And they were supposed to recognize that any military victory that they had was all because that the Lord had delivered them, delivered their enemies into their hand. But the Lord tells Samuel in chapter 8, verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in, in all that they have said to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all their deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving their gods, so also they are doing to you. Ever since Israel went through the Red Sea in Exodus, they could do nothing but rebel against God. They wanted to worship other gods. They wanted to break his commandments. That, that was their MO. That's all they wanted to do. And now the Lord is saying, you know what they did to Moses in Exodus and in Numbers? They're doing that to you. But ultimately, yeah, they did that to you and Moses, but they're rejecting me as their king. But Samuel nevertheless obey, set a king over the people. And now, after chapter 8, we get to chapter 9, and that's when we are introduced to this young man named Saul. Now, the first thing, if you look at chapter 9, that comes out about Saul is the fact that he comes from pretty good stock. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. 
There was a man named Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeroar, the son of, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the people of Israel back 3,000 years ago were a little bit shorter than we are now. People say that the average adult male ranged between 5 foot even and 5 feet 3 inches tall. So with Saul being head and shoulders above the average male of Israel, that put him at around 6'3". And now being 6'3", even today, is pretty tall, but this is basically a 7-foot giant walking around, head and shoulders above everybody of the people. But here's why his appearance and also the fact that he comes from a good family is so important. The author is trying to say that... The, Israel is asking for a king, they're clamoring for a king, and they're going to get someone who actually looks the part. They're going to get a man of valor who stands head and shoulders. This man is handsome, he is a physical specimen. He is going to be someone who, at first glance, you're going to say, this is a leader, this is a king. He has a kingly stature. And that's why when we read our sermon text in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul is hiding in the baggage and then comes out, they see essentially this giant. And Samuel, the prophet, says, look at him. He's your king. There is no one else like him among the people. So the Lord is making it clear that he was choosing this very strong, very good-looking, very tall man to lead them. But in our sermon text, and also in, this, in these passages, we see another thing about Saul, and that he was a self-deprecating man. He's tall, but he's doing a very ordinary task when we meet him in 1 Samuel chapter 9. He's trying to look for some donkeys. Some of his dad's donkeys had wandered away, and someone tells him, oh, there's this prophet named Samuel that you should go ask and say, hey, he might be able to help you find your donkeys. So Saul and Samuel meet, but Samuel knows that this tall young man that's walking to him is actually going to be the one to be anointed the king of Israel. So they start talking, and Samuel says to Saul, I am the man you're looking for. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will, let you, I will let you go, and you will tell me all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? That last line might be a little confusing, but essentially what Samuel is saying to Saul is that all the people want a king, you're going to be the king, so everybody, this collective heart of the people of Israel is set on you. They want you more than anything in the world. What does Saul say? He says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? If you know anything about Saul, this does not sound like the Saul that you will meet who's trying to pin David to a wall with a spear. This is a humble man, even humble to a fault, where he's self-deprecating. He's looking at this old man named Samuel who's telling him that he's going to be king, saying, dude, what are you even talking about? Like, I don't, why are you talking to me this way? Because Saul didn't think much of himself. And even after he's anointed king by Samuel, he goes back to his family's house, and his uncle says, hey, where were you? Looking for the donkeys. Oh, I also talked to Samuel. 
And you have to remember, Samuel's the leader of Israel. It's basically saying, yeah, I met the president. And his uncle asked, so what did you and Samuel actually talk about? And Saul answered, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but, quote, about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he didn't tell him anything. Saul's trying to downplay this whole thing. He's trying to say, I'm not the king. I'm not a big deal. I'm no one and nothing. And then here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel calls all the people of Israel to this one place, including Saul. And I don't know if Saul's just trying to avoid the inevitable, but he's hiding with the suitcases because he knows the fact that he's going to be inaugurated as the king, but on his own inauguration day, he's trying to hide. This is a very self-deprecating man. He, he might have been head and shoulders above everybody, but he felt puny. He felt tiny. He felt nothing. He felt like he couldn't amount to the task that the Lord was actually giving him. But he's actually right. He could not amount to the task that the Lord was giving him. So that's why the Lord put his spirit on Saul. Flip to 1 Samuel chapter 10. God knows just how self-deprecating Saul is, just how much he lacks self-confidence. So the Lord is going to help him in his task to be the king over Israel. So at the beginning of chapter 10, after Samuel anoints Saul to be the next king, the Lord, or Saul says, has, or sorry, Samuel says, Has the Lord not anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this will be the sign that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then Saul is given three signs that's going to happen, and the last of which is the most important. Samuel tells Saul that the Spirit of the Lord is going to descend upon him, and he's going to start prophesying. And, quote, you will prophesy with other prophets, and you will be turned into another man. And when he, Samuel, or Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. The Lord knows that Saul, in and of itself, cannot lead. So the Lord changes Saul into a man who can lead, who is led by his spirit, and can actually lead and fight for the people of Israel and to save them from their enemies. Yahweh made Saul a new man and gave him a new heart. Yeah, it took a little bit for him to actually come out of his shell because all of this is happening right before he gets inaugurated. He's still his own shy, self-deprecating self right after this. But the truth is, when he is led by God's Spirit, he is a good king. We're moving right along. Look at 1 Samuel 11. This actually tells of Saul's strong start. And yeah, you might know a lot about Saul, and he didn't end well, but he actually did start pretty well. In 1 Samuel 11, the king of Ammon comes to the people of Israel at a place named Jabesh-Gilead and basically says, I'm going to basically kill all of you guys, or I'm going to put your eyes out. So what are you going to do? The people said, give us a week to think about if we'll die or be your slaves. And then word actually reached Saul that this was happening. And Saul is not doing very kingly things when this word reaches him. He's actually... Uh, plowing his father's field with some oxen. But if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5, this is, what, this is what it says. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with all the people? Why are they weeping? 
So they told him the news of the men of Jebesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he, Saul, mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. You know you can tell a man is good by what makes him angry. If very minuscule things make him angry, he's not a very good man. But if the things that make God angry makes him angry, he's good. He's being led by the Spirit. And when Saul hears that his brothers in Israel are being threatened, he slaughters some oxen and says, if, this doesn't, if you guys don't follow me, this is what's going to happen to you. And he musters over 300,000 soldiers to go out and fight for his brothers. The people of Jabesh Gilead are saved. And Saul's victory is decisive and it's unifying. All of Israel are coming together and they are saying, this man is our king. We are going to be led by him, we're going to follow him, and he's going to protect us. And that's how Saul started. Just a glance over chapter 12, Samuel gives a farewell address because he is moving out of the limelight and Saul is moving into the limelight. Samuel is saying, I was your judge, but now Saul is your king. But Saul's success did not last very long. If you look at 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, there's going to be another major battle between the Israelite army and the Philistine army. And if you look at chapter 13, verse 6, this is what the Bible says. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in the fords of the Jordan and in the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now Israel is coming face to face with their enemy, and the people are scared. Saul's a little scared himself. And Saul knew that he needed to do something. He knew that he needed to seek the Lord's favor if this battle was going to go their way. And now he and Samuel had talked before they went out, before Saul went out to the battle lines. And Samuel said, I will be there in seven days, and then in seven days I'm going to offer a sacrifice, and then you go and fight the Philistines. But it's day seven, and Samuel's not there, and Saul's getting a little concerned. So if you look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13, he, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Saul did not come to Gilgal, or Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and all the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. So now, it might seem logical what Saul's trying to do here. He knows that he, a sacrifice needs to be offered to the Lord for the battle to go their way. But the way that the Lord structured the sacrificial system was that only priests could offer sacrifices. Samuel was a priest. He was going to be the one who was authorized to offer a sacrifice. But that was only for a priest. That was not for a king. So even though Saul was a king and everything was, in, was logical in Saul's mind, he was actually breaking a major commandment of the Old Testament covenant. 
Saul was doing something he knew he shouldn't do. And so, of course, in divine irony, Samuel walks up minutes after Saul makes this massive mistake, and Samuel knows something's wrong. And so he goes to figure out what Saul actually did. But Saul, who was once self-deprecating, is now self-righteous. It's ironic that this man who lacked self-confidence was now self-righteous, and he could do nothing wrong. He could do nothing wrong. And Saul said to Samuel, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within a day's appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He knew it was wrong, so he forced himself to do it. He forced himself to break the law, and Samuel says, you got that all backwards. You did that wrong. Samuel says to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. Saul overstepped his boundaries. Saul tried to shift the blame. He tried to shift the blame onto Samuel by saying, you didn't get here in time, even though Samuel did get there in time. But now, for Saul's sin, Saul was not going to have a kingly line. He was still going to be king, but his son and his sons after them were not going to be kings. Someone else, which we know is David, is going to come in, and David's family is going to be the king over Israel. But it's right here where we start to see a little bit of a breakdown in Saul. Saul's mental and emotional capacities really start to deteriorate right now, and he starts to become irrational. And sadly, it's all downhill from here. That was Saul's first failure. His second failure is in chapter 14 in 1 Samuel. It's Saul's rash vow. So basically, Saul's trying to overcompensate for everything that's happening. And he tells his whole army, you cannot eat until the Philistines are defeated. Now, it makes no sense to tell soldiers who are fighting in a battle not to eat, because eating is going to be what helps them recover their strength. Saul is being an absolute idiot. And his son Jonathan actually doesn't hear his dad make that oath. So Jonathan eats some honey, gets his strength back, and then everyone around him says, hey, do you know what your dad said? John says, I don't care what my dad said. He's brought trouble on the people. And Saul, again, losing his mind, tells Jonathan, his son, you are going to die today for breaking the vow I made and I'm forcing you to keep. And Jonathan says, okay, do it. It doesn't happen. Jonathan is actually proving himself to be a valiant warrior at this time. And the people, the other soldiers, actually ransom Jonathan's life. Saul's not allowed to take it. But again, this man wanted to kill his own son. And it gets even worse from there. His third and most major failure was sparing Amalek. And that's in 1 Samuel 15. At the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. 
kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, if you remember back to when we went through Exodus, this is referring back to Exodus chapter 17. So Israel had left Egypt, and they were traveling throughout the wilderness, and this nation of nomads called Amalek started killing them. They started a war with Israel, and you might remember this battle. This is the battle where Moses is sitting there with holding his staff up in the air, and when he's holding his staff in the air, Israel's winning. But when he gets tired and lowers his staff, Amalek is winning. So his brother Aaron and his father-in-law Hur come and hold his arms up until the whole army of Amalek is defeated. But also somewhere in the Bible it says that Amalek started picking off the people that were lagging behind the pack of Israel as they traveled throughout the desert. It was a very cowardly move. And the Lord says that he will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord puts out a vendetta against this group of people. And he basically says, if you find an Amalekite, you kill him. No questions asked. That is something that is ingrained deeply into Israel's history. And so Saul is being told something by Samuel that's something he should know. If you're going to go out and fight the Amalekites, you completely destroy them. But he didn't do it. Saul refused. If you look at chapter 15, verse 9, Saul and the people spared Amalek's king named Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and he would not utterly destroy them. That's flat-out rebellion. When the Lord tells you to do something and you don't do it, that's sin. You're disobeying him. It's just so cut and dry, but for some odd reason, Saul just doesn't get it. If you look down at verse 12, Samuel rose early to go meet Saul after this battle in the morning. And it was told to Samuel that Saul came down to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. If that doesn't make sense why Saul is celebrating himself, it shouldn't. Saul rebelled, but somewhere in his mind, he thought that he fulfilled God's commandment. And he basically said, I kept all of the good sheep so that we could offer it to the Lord. And while that might sound good, the truth is he was directly disobeying what God had clearly said. This man was so self-deceived. He was so, he had such delusions of grandeur that he thought that he was a king who could do no wrong and he set a memorial up to himself. What happened to the self-deprecating tall young lad that he is now this self-deceived, self-righteous king who doesn't realize that his kingly line is going to end with him. Something just doesn't make sense. And Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul says, I commanded the, the command, or I did the command of the Lord. But then Samuel says, then why do I hear sheep bleeding in my ear? Why do I hear all this sound of livestock if you were supposed to kill it all and devote it all to destruction? But Saul justifies himself. He said, oh, we kept it all to honor the Lord with it. And again, in verse 20, he says, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. But his heart had grown so hard and so cold that he couldn't see the very clear disobedience that he committed against the Lord. 
And this is the last straw. Samuel speaks an oracle, a word of the Lord to Saul. And Samuel said, Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul, God's done with you. You're not king anymore. You failed one too many times to lead Israel as their king. So he's being rejected. But he's being rejected as his king. God is not full-out rejecting him as a person. It's very important to note this. Because the thing is, Saul is hitting rock bottom right here. Once Samuel says that the Lord had rejected him from being king, Saul comes to his senses really quickly and says, I have sinned, I have, I have transgressed, and he begs Samuel to pray for him to have his sins forgiven. Saul finally saw the wreckage of, that had become of his life. And honestly, which one of us hasn't seen the wreckage of our own lives come at our own hand? Who hasn't seen terrible consequences come from our own actions and our own disobedience? Honestly, if you're a Christian, you realized that you cannot save yourself from your sins and that you were bound for hell if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And which one of us hasn't felt the destructive repercussions of our own sin? Which one of us hasn't felt the shame of backsliding into these sinful tendencies that we thought that we graduated from, that we didn't think we could ever commit again? And who hasn't thought that they had sinned too much to disqualify themselves from God's love? Rock bottom is a pivotal place because you need to make a decision. Saul needs to make a decision. You can either repent and ask forgiveness from the Lord or you can feel sorry for a little bit and then go on doing everything that you're already doing and not changing one bit. And Saul chose the latter. He was sorry for a second, but that sorrow passed very quickly. And he went right back into his sin. He did not repent. And from then on, we see Saul's demise. If you flip to 1 Samuel 16, chapter 14, we read that now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. A lot of people look at this verse, and they have a lot of questions. They think, how could a good God send a demon, a spirit to torment Saul? Because people think that's kind of twisting the knife in this poor man's back. But the truth is, this was an act of judgment. This was God giving Saul over to his sin. Because you have to remember, the Lord gave Saul his spirit. The Lord gave Saul his spirit out of his grace. And so removing that spirit wasn't twisting the knife. It was an act of judgment. You can't detach the fact that Saul is losing his mind maybe literally, maybe figuratively here. But the truth is he had grieved the Spirit of the Lord so much that the Lord removed this, his Spirit from him. And When the Lord removed his Spirit, we see Saul become even further entrenched in paranoia, in depression, in sadness, in fits of rage, and it all seems to be directed towards this man named David. Because David 
was the man after God's own heart that the Lord was going to raise up to replace Saul. But it just so happens that David was the one called into Saul's court to play the harp and the lyre every time the spirit tormented and agitated Saul. So unfortunately, the object of Saul's hatred was also the source of Saul's peace and quiet. But Saul still loses his mind. He wanted to kill his own son. He wanted to kill David. He hated the fact that Jonathan and David actually had an alliance together and that Jonathan helped David escape. But Saul tried to pursue David many times, and we'll get into David's story later. But the truth is, ever from Saul's rejection in 1 Samuel chapter 15 all the way down to his death, it's nothing but a downward spiral into sin. It's a tragedy. There are two events that I want to talk about and mention quickly that show just how far Saul actually went. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 22. There's a city called Nob, and David fled there as he was fleeing from Saul. And then word reached Saul that these priests in the city of Nob helped David escape and helped give him and his men food. So then Saul ordered his army to go down and slaughter the city. He slaughtered the 85 priests that helped David, and he slaughtered all of the men, all of the women, all of the children, and all of the livestock. Ironically, he did to Nob what he should have done to Amalek in chapter 15. It's just so sad. Him slaughtering priests, women, and children. And then in 1 Samuel 28, Saul resorts to sorcery and necromancy. Again, Israel is about to go fight the Philistines, and Saul is more terrified than he ever was before, and he's becoming so terrified, and his lack of confidence that he had before is now back. He lacks so much confidence. He needs a word from someone. He needs a little bit of encouragement. But in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6, it says that Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. The Lord had completely rejected Saul. He wasn't going to hear Saul's prayers anymore, especially when Saul was just trying to hear a word from the Lord to indulge his own sinful lack of confidence. So Saul turns to the occult. Occult practices were detestable in Israel. The law of Moses forbade any occult practices. And, but it, this shows just how far Saul fell. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 8, it says this, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. And he had two men with him. And he came to the woman by night this woman, also known as the witch of Endor. And he said, Divine for me by, by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I, I shall name to you. The witch said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why are you laying up a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul stooped so low that he dove headlong into a practice that he himself outlawed. He was, hypocrisy doesn't begin to describe what Saul is diving into here. And he tells this necromancing witch to bring up Samuel, who had died earlier, because he's hoping that maybe a word from Samuel, a word from his friend, 
might be what he needs to go out and fight this battle and to actually win. This necromancer brings up Samuel, all right, but Samuel doesn't give him a good word. Samuel says, you and your sons are going to die in this battle. And they do. If you flip to 1 Samuel chapter 31, that's the last chapter in 1 Samuel. It tells of Saul's death. Saul is critically wounded by an arrow, and he's still alive, and he goes to his armor bearer and says, if I don't die, the Philistines are going to capture me and ridicule me, so I need you to kill me. And the armor bearer says, I can't do that. So then Saul falls on his own sword and kills himself like a coward. In 1 Samuel 31, and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, tells what happened to Saul after he fell on his own sword. So Saul, actually it interprets what, Saul, what happened to Saul. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and consulted a medium, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, and therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul killed himself, trying to escape humiliation from the hands of the Philistine army, but the truth is that the Philistines find his body anyway, they cut his head off and put him in their pagan temple, and then strap his headless body to the wall along with his sons, to say, here's your king, he's dead. He tried to escape ridicule by killing himself, but he was ridiculed all the more in his death. This is a heck of an Advent service, isn't it? How is this dead king's lifeless, headless body strapped to a wall have anything to do with baby Jesus? How? How is the tragedy of this king who went from self-deprecating to self-righteous have anything to do with this Savior that is coming to us in a manger? How? Well, the truth is, the story of Saul proves just how much we actually need a Savior. Truth be told, we are more like Saul than we want to admit. We might not be a king or a queen or a prince or a princess, but we so easily can trust our own flesh to think that we know how to please God when he has so clearly showed us how and to become self-righteous and self-deceived into thinking that we can do no wrong. But it's that person who thinks he's a savior, but it's that person who needs a savior more than anyone else. We met Saul as a tall kid looking for his dad, don, dad's donkeys. He was a humble man. He was an orthodox man. He, he knew who the Lord was, but he fell from grace so quickly. And after he fell from grace, the truth is he could have repented. He might have lost the kingdom, but he didn't have to lose his soul, but he chose to lose his soul anyway. Saul teaches us just how much that when we fall, we need a savior. And we can't be our own savior. We need one for us. And that savior is also going to have to be a faithful king. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25, you might have overlooked it when I read it, but it says that Samuel read to Saul and to the people the duties and the responsibilities of the king. 
those duties and responsibilities are found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 20. In there, Moses, as he's writing, says that the king shouldn't acquire many wives for himself. We're going to run into someone who does that. Shouldn't acquire much gold and silver or horses for himself. But it also says that he, the king, shall write the copy of the law of the Lord for himself, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the left, right hand or the left hand. That wasn't Saul. Saul forgot so much. He saw it with his own eyes, but he still forgot it. Saul should have been a king who feared the Lord. Saul should have been a king that would have faithfully led the people. But he sinned and refused to repent, and it led to his demise. The truth is, every other king that came after Saul didn't live up to this standard either. They didn't keep the word of the Lord. But there was one. He was born in a manger. He was born about 2,000 years after this, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was someone who kept the law. He was someone who did not sin. He did not turn from his right or to his left, and he did not raise himself up in pride above his brothers. In fact, in humility, he came down low. He came down from heaven and took the form of a servant. Not only that, not only did he take the form of a servant, but he came down to lay his life down. When we see Saul at the end of his life, we see him so much the opposite of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. He's an anti-type. Because Saul was faithful for a moment, but then he found himself on a slippery slope which he fell all the way down to his own condemnation. He died a godless coward. He had his lifeless body affixed to a wall to be mocked and humiliated. But what about Christ? Christ was faithful for a lifetime. He found himself tempted and tried just as Saul was and just as we are, but was without sin. Saul chose to kill himself instead of being ridiculed by his enemies. But Christ... He chose to be ridiculed by his enemies so that we could be saved. Just think. Christ chose to be ridiculed, to be beaten, to be spat on, and to have his body affixed to a cross. Saul was overcome by grief and sorrow and took his own life. But Christ is the one who bore our griefs. He's the one who carried our sorrows and died for our sins. He was crowned with a crown of thorns for us. He died for us. He died a death much more humiliating, much more painful than Saul's for us. That is the king that we worship at Advent. That is the king whose coming we celebrate every year. And that is the king that we await again when he comes to save his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people who have rejected you as our king. We are a people who have rebelled against you. 
And like you told Saul through the prophet Samuel, rejecting you is the same as going after other gods, lesser gods. And that is a sin that we cannot save ourselves from. But Lord, it's in the season that we have hope and anticipation of the true king, the king of kings, coming to save us. A king that is faithful in ways that Saul never was and that we could never could be either. A king who is faithful to the end and a king that will reign forever. And it's in the name of King Jesus that I pray. Amen.